So here's the question I want to start with tonight. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? What's the hardest decision you've ever had to make? What's the hardest moment you've ever had to face? Maybe it was saying goodbye to a loved one or dropping a child off at school or making a decision about your career or having the decision about your career made for you. Maybe it was a financial issue that you had to work through. Or it was a relationship that dwindled and died. Tonight, as we continue our series of Red Letter Bears, we're going to look at what I think is the hardest moment in the life of Jesus. You've got your Bibles. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And that's where we're going to kind of camp out tonight. And it's a little bit of a different story than last week. Because last week, Jesus was teaching us how to pray. But in tonight's passage, Jesus is actually praying. And when we get to Matthew 26, we have this understanding that this is a very, very important moment in the life of Jesus. And it's a very difficult moment in the life of Jesus. It's painful, brutal, dark, and honest, and real. I want you to hang in with me tonight because at times it's going to kind of feel like we're we're swimming and there's water rising continually around us. It's going to be hard to work through some of this stuff. Now Matthew chapter 26 falls at the end of Jesus' ministry. It falls as he's looking towards the cross. And in fact, in the last chapters before this, in the few chapters before it, he's been starting to tell people, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you something. It's getting close. Uh, Something big's about to happen, and I'm actually walking to my death, and I just want you to be aware of it. The disciples are like, that's not going to happen. Don't worry about it, Jesus. We got your back. Everything's good. Jesus says, no, listen. We're going that direction. He, he's just come from a place where a woman has anointed his feet and, and she is the only one in the room that seems to recognize what is about to happen in his life and who he is. He's just finished supper with his closest friends as they've gathered around the table to celebrate this Passover meal. And he, he has been celebrating with them. And during the celebration, he says to them that some important things are about to happen. He's walking towards his death. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And Judas Iscariot, it tells us, a guy that pretended to be Jesus' friend, a guy that Jesus fed and taught and loved and cared for and looked after for three years, decides that he would rather have 30 pieces of silver than to actually stick with Jesus. And so he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And as they're in this room, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all say, oh no, it's not us. And Peter says, I would never betray you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. Following that, it tells us that they sang a hymn, they went out into the night, and then they go to this garden. Most people think it's on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus gets there, you get this sense that as he's there thinking about all that has just transpired and all that is to come, he's lonely, betrayed, abandoned, facing death, suffering, hurting, and the moment is dark. I mean, actually, it's dark. With a cross on the horizon, he knows that he will soon be put to death, that the wrath of God will be poured out on him because of you and me and sinners throughout history. Now, none of us really know what it's like to face a cross, but many of us know what it's like to face a devastating moment. 
And something's coming down the pipe that we really just don't have any control over. Some of you know what it's like to stare down a day when you will be betrayed or abandoned or hurt or you will bleed or you will weep or even death is approaching in your family. What's interesting about that is in this moment, Jesus doesn't distrust God. He doesn't deny God. He doesn't disregard God. He doesn't doubt God. He prays. I want you to pick up the story with me in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. It says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, here's what I want you to understand. First of all, this isn't one of those moments when Jesus gets them all around and says, everybody, I want you to listen to me as I pray. I want you to hear me as I pray. I want you to feel what I'm feeling and understand what I'm understanding. This is... I'm going to pray. Y'all just stay here, walk, and pray. I'm going to, I'm going to go over here. I've got to pray. Now, here's the thing that I, I just kind of want you to think about for a moment before we kind of move on. If Jesus needs to pray, then who are we to think we don't? And Jesus says, listen, guys, I, I, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray. Y'all take care. Y'all sit here. I, I've just got some things. That I need to take care of it. We learn that he takes Peter and James and John with him. I mean, these were his three kind of leaders. Peter was the leader. The other two guys, the sons of Zebedee, were, were right along with him. I mean, they're there when he raises Jairus' daughter. They're there when he uh, has the Mount of Transfiguration. These are his elite group. These are the leaders of the leaders. And he pulls them aside and says, I want you all to go with me. And he says, please pray with me while I go pray. He then goes on to say, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Just reading that doesn't give us the depth of the emotion that is in this moment. My soul is swallowed up in death or in sorrow to the point of death. The book of Luke, Luke was a physician. Luke gives us a detail about this. Some of you know this detail. It says that while he's praying, while he's there in that moment, he is so distressed that he is sweating blood. Now, doctors have actually diagnosed that in few people where they are so stressed and distressed that the capillaries in their bodies begin to break down and blood comes out like sweat. I've never been there. My guess is neither of you. I'm not saying you haven't been stressed. I'm not saying you haven't been distressed. I'm not saying that you haven't had trouble. I'm not saying you haven't had sorrow. But to the point where you are physically sweating blood. Very few people ever get to that point. No matter how painful life gets, no matter how dark it gets, very few of us will arrive at that. And what I want you to see, first of all, as we kind of think through this passage of Scripture, and what we see in Jesus is that it is okay to be devastated in life. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be concerned, to be fearful, to be devastated. You know, there's... A lot of people out there giving lots of thoughts about what it means to follow God and what it means to be a Christian. And there is just frankly some stupid Christianity out there. And one of the stupid things in Christianity out there is that if you just have enough faith in God, everything will be okay. You'll be a winner, not a loser. You'll be happy, not sad. You'll be rich, 
not poor. People talk to you and sometimes say, have a good attitude, don't be so negative. Just trust God, have faith, everything will be great. It's almost as if they say, if you have enough faith in Jesus, you won't have to be like Him. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, it was not everything's okay and rich. Right? Are you here? Right? I mean, Jesus said what? I don't even have a place to lay my head. He was born to parents that were so poor, they couldn't give the normal sacrifice. They had to give the one that poor people gave. And there are these people out there that say, listen, if you follow Jesus enough, if you do what He says, you don't have to be poor, you can be rich. You don't have to be sick, you can be healthy. From what I see of Jesus here, He is devastated, sad, torn up, concerned. Jesus is experiencing deep thoughts of sadness and concern and anxiety even. Not all anxiety is bad. What you do with it determines whether it's bad or not. What Jesus does is He does what we all should do. He goes to the Lord respectfully but honestly. God, I hate what is happening. I am devastated. I am incredibly upset about it. What you don't need to do when you get the phone call and the diagnosis is cancer or Your brother calls and says that your dad has suffered a major medical condition and it doesn't look good. Or the doctor calls and said that it doesn't appear that kids are ever in your future. Or you get the report that tells you your job is now in danger. Or the bank statement comes and it is not working out. What you don't need to do in those moments is act like everything is okay and everything is great and there's no problem at all. Jesus had sorrow. He's devastated. You say, why are you kind of dwelling on the bad stuff here? I mean, it's Saturday night. We're here. Why are we supposed to be the exciting time, right? Because I'm afraid that there are a lot of people that if they're not careful with their faith in Christ, they miss out on having it when they need it the most. And if your philosophy is, if I believe in Jesus, everything's great, everything's good, I never get sick, I never have any uh, problems with money, I never have any problems with my job, my kids will be great, what happens when you get sick? What happens when your kids walk away? What happens when the grades aren't what you expect them to be? What happens when the bank statement shows a negative instead of a positive? What's sad is there are a lot of people that miss out on having the relationship with the Lord they need to get them through the most difficult times of life. It's okay to be devastated. Do you know people lie in church all the time? You walk up to somebody tonight in the morning and say, how are you today? And everybody says, I'm fine. No, we're not. Everything's great. Everything's good. Nothing wrong. I've just yelled at my wife for the last two hours, but it's great. My kid just spilled a whole cup of juice in the car and we've been yelling at him for 10 minutes, but it's wonderful. Hypothetical situations there. If your theology is that Christians are winners all the time, what happens when we lose? And if we never get sick, what happens when we get sick? And if we're always rich, what happens when we miss a payment? Jesus was devastated and there will be moments when we are too. But here's the important thing. When you're devastated, pray. Here's what it says. 
going on a little farther, he separates himself from Peter, James, and John. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He says to Peter, James, and John, Hey guys, I appreciate you all coming this far with me. Could you just kind of watch and wait and pray for a little bit? I'm going to go a little bit further. I've got to be by myself right now. And so he goes over by himself and he gets on the ground and the sweat is coming out like blood. He is stressed. He is burdened. He can't think about what's about to happen. And it says that he says to the Lord, My father, my dad, Abba. The word he uses is the most intimate term you can use for a dad. I like to imagine it the way... um, my children call me daddy. Yesterday, actually Thursday, uh, Susan substitute taught, and I took my, my day off during the week on Thursday. And so I had the girls, just the girls and me at home. And I, I'm, I'm up and I'm in the chair and waiting on them to kind of get up and got the boys off to school. And Maddie comes walking in. She's the first one up of the two. And she walks in and she says, Dad, what do you think about me? And I said, well... And I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but something like, you're beautiful, you're smart, I think you're funny, and I love you. She said, that's great, that's great. She said, now, now ask me what I think about you. And I said, uh, okay, what do you think about me? And she says, well, you're funny, and your hair is hard to brush. You're lovely, which I took as a compliment, although some guys may not, and you are a great dad. This is a special little moment, right? Ava's to the point now, when I come home from work in the afternoon, she sees me and she can get Dada out. And she will yell it. Dada! Just to the top of her lungs. I get the sense here that, that Jesus is talking to the Father in as intimate as a way as you can from a child to a dad. He says, Dad. Man, if it's possible... I don't want to do this. There's a lot of discussion about what this cup means here. It says, let this cup pass from me. And from Old Testament study and from understanding, in the Old Testament, the cup was often associated with the wrath of God. And so people are saying, what is Jesus so stressed about? What is he so worried about? Well, there are lots of things on the horizon. I mean, there is the physical death of the cross, which was the most excruciating pain and death you could imagine in the history of the world. It's just terrible. But I think there's more to it than that. If this cup has a reference to the wrath of God, I think he is saying, Lord, if there is any way where I don't have to experience the wrath of you because of the sin of these people, then let it be. He who knew no sin became sin and experienced the full wrath of God. In fact, when he's on the cross and he's about to die, he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never in eternity had the Father and the Son been separated. And as Jesus looks down the lens of what's coming in a few hours, He is distressed, He is discouraged, He is upset, He is devastated, and He says as honestly as He can, Dad, I don't want to do this. Take it. Now, we've been there, right? And I'm not talking about just the 
Kind of silly ones we pray. I'm not prepared for this test. Could you have somebody else take it? Or could you not the teacher not show up? Or could it move dates? Or I'm not quite ready for this deadline at work. Could the deadline move a little bit? Lord, could you take care of that? I'm talking about the serious stuff. And he says in his prayer what he taught us to say last week. Dad, if it's possible, I want this cup to pass. Yet, not my will, but yours. Most of us don't really want to pray that prayer. I was thinking about, you know, as a pastor, I, I kind of have a front row seat to those moments in people's lives that are similar, not the same, but similar to the depth of devastation that Jesus sees here. I remember back to... And I was in Ripley and I got a call. I was eating lunch at a Chinese restaurant in Ripley. Ripley had three choices, Chinese, Mexican, and McDonald's. So it was Chinese day. I was eating at the Chinese restaurant in town. And I got a call from my secretary. She had been on the job like three or four days. She said, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know you're at work. I mean, you're at lunch with Susan. But we just got a call. And it was a mom who had a two-year-old child. They had rushed to the hospital. And she said she wants to see you, but she asked, could you just pray before you get there that God would do something? So I remember going, Susan had dropped me off in my car, I got in my car, I drove to the hospital, that local hospital that was there in Ripley, small little hospital, got there, got to the emergency room, praying the whole way, God heal this child, take care of this child, heal this child, do for this child something that would be amazing and miraculous for the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, do something. And I got there and I was walked in the door, I said, how is he? And the doctor walked out and said to the mom, he didn't make it. And the doctor said, you want to walk back with us to see the child to the mom? And she said, yes, pastor, you come and you pray with us. Now, what do you pray in that moment? I thought about my own experience with Susan and I, with her mom. And uh, Marilyn was diagnosed with cancer. I still remember the phone call that we got. We were still living in Preston Run Apartments. We had not bought the house we're in now. We had been here about four or five months. We got a call. They had been to MD Anderson. Her dad called her on the phone. We knew they had left MD Anderson. We knew the flight had left. We knew all that. We hadn't heard a word from them. They got back to Jackson. They called us and they said, the doctor said there's no reason to do anything else. And I thought about in there that just weeks before Susan had been on a this family from Inglewood had provided a plane for them to fly to David, her brother's church. And David's entire church gathered around them, put her in the center, and the entire church prayed for healing and for God to do stuff and for God to do something that nobody could explain. And yet we got the news that there was nothing else to do. You see, your faith in God is dependent on everything being good and healthy and right and whole in those moments, you don't know where to go. And Jesus comes to this moment of deep distress and says, God, I want it taken away. But I want to do your will more than mine. Here's what I find interesting about that as well. So he gets up after he's prayed that. And he goes back to check on his friends. What are his friends doing? Sleeping. 
Do you know if anybody deserved to have faithful friends, it probably would have been Jesus? Right? I mean, he's not the kind of guy, well, they, they kind of slept on him, but I'm sure there was a time that Jesus slept on them. Well, probably not. Well, they may not have been there for him, but there was probably a time Jesus wasn't there for them. No, he was there for them. He's kind of perfect. And I know all of you think that everything's great. You've got the best friends in the world. And you've found some people, and I'm not trying to discourage you. But you've got the, I've got the best friends. They're never going to let me down. They're never going to do anything. Guess what? They will. Because they're just like you. Jesus walks out in these guys, and he says to them, I've been gone for an hour. Now, we'll get back to that in a minute. I've been gone for an hour, and you can't even stay awake? Keep watch. Stay awake. Help me pray. And he goes back. And he prays for another hour, and he comes back, and what are the guys doing? They're sleeping. Jesus says, just an hour, I need you. I was gone an hour. Could you stay awake? And he goes back, and he prays for another hour. And he comes back, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. Now, before you judge them, all right? Let me ask you this question. If Jesus were to come back at any moment in the last week, would He always find you doing what you were supposed to be doing? These guys, is sleeping evil? Absolutely not. Amen? How many of you enjoy sleeping? Some of you are enjoying it right now. That's good. I know there are some that their favorite nap time is an hour on Sunday morning. Sleeping's not bad, right? But at the moment, they weren't supposed to be sleeping. They were supposed to be watching, waiting, staying awake. And Jesus says, listen, can you not just do that for a minute? And Jesus, this is what I love about it. He is continually kind of consoling them. Yeah, I know it. And it adds to the, I believe, to the desperation in his voice and what is happening because he realizes these guys are not understanding the depth of what's going on. And so he goes back. He prays three times, from what we can tell, about an hour each time. Now, just so you know, that you know they didn't have wristwatches or iPhones back then, right? So they weren't timing it. They didn't have a timer on it. But here's what I think is interesting. It took Jesus at least three hours to get to the place where he was okay with what was about to happen. And here's the third thing. You know, it's okay to be devastated. When you're devastated, you pray. Here's the third thing that we see from this passage, and then we're going to close up. Here's the third thing. Pray as long as you need to pray. As long as it takes. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and a few years ago they made a movie about his life named Shadowlands. In Shadowlands, it tells the story of him and his wife, Joy, who he originally married because he thought she was a great lady and somebody that ought to be able to do what she wanted to. She was an American poet. She came to England. She wanted to stay in England. So C.S. Lewis says, I'll marry you so you can stay in England as my wife. That's not really a great proposal, but it worked. They got married, and as they were married, this is really an amazing story, just of being faithful to God's covenant to one another. As they were married, they grew more and more in love until Joy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. She went through terrible ups and downs. And in the movie, it shows this scene where he has some friends at Oxford that are believers, strong believers, and he has some that are not at all. And the ones that are not at all are wondering why he's praying all the time. Why are you praying? And he goes in and he, they get some good news about joy. And one of his friends comes and says, See, now you're going to show them. You've been praying and God is answering. And C.S. Lewis in the movie 
depicted of his life from research says, I don't pray to make God do something. I pray because it's all I know to do. It flows from out of me. I don't pray for God to change things. I pray for God to change me. See, there's some really bad... I talked about bad Christian ideas about what it means to to always win or always have money. There's some really bad Christian ideas out there what it means to pray. And a lot of what is taught as Christian prayer is really pagan prayer. Because pagan prayer is, hey God, I want to change your mind to give me what you don't want to give me. And if I say it enough times in the right way, with the right words, with the right attitude, then you are obligated to change your mind and to do something for me. That's not what Christian prayer is. Christian prayer is, God, I have some needs, I have concerns, I have some wants. And I'd like for you to do that. But I want your will more than my own. It recognizes the sovereignty and the goodness of God and says, God, I want you to change me to be more in line with your will. And however long that takes, you pray it. Here's some questions I want to ask you as we kind of think about this passage. The first question I have for you is, when you pray, do you pray to get things from God or you pray to get God? Do you pray for the stuff or for the relationship? And Jesus gets somebody's prayer. He's not worried about losing stuff from his life. He's not worried about... He didn't have a house. He didn't have a family. He didn't have a wife. He's worried about losing intimacy with the Father. Intimacy with God is what he treasures the most. And in your prayer life, is it about getting stuff or is it about God? Secondly, do you pray to move God or for God to move you? God, do this. Heal me. Change them. Fix it. Make it better. Take it all away. Or... God, change me. Change my heart. Change my attitude. Let me love my enemies. Let me persevere through hardship. Don't get me around it. Get me through it. Third, do you pray to get out of pain or through it? Almost every Christian I've ever met prays to get out of pain. God, don't let me get into that. Or when I get in it, get me out of it. God says that being a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't mean we will be taken out of pain. It just means that we have Him to go through it with us. I was thinking about this listening to Rick Warren. Some of you know Rick Warren. Rick Warren's a pastor in California. Rick Warren's been in the news lately because several months ago, the week after Easter, his 27-year-old son Matthew took his own life. Matthew had been struggling with mental illness for years. I watched Rick's first sermon after he came back. It was months later before he preached again at Saddleback. And as he came back, he said, I prayed every day that God would heal him. He said, and now I'm praying every day that God will get me through it. The loss of my son. I'm not saying you pray for pain. I'm saying that when you come and ask God, take the pain away, you also add to it and help me get through whatever's here. I prayed almost every day 
since I was 12 years old that God would take away diabetes somehow. It didn't happen. And so when I pray that, I also pray, God, help me get through it until it is. Now listen, because of modern advances, it is not near as bad as it used to be. So I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm just saying that we all have issues that it's easy to pray, God, just take it away, take it away. When sometimes God is wanting to grow us through it and we need to pray, God, get me through it instead of take it away. Here's the last one. Do you courageously punctuate your prayers with your will be done? We said this last week. The point of prayer is surrender in your will, not imposing it. You know, I was thinking about it this way, that that in prayer what we ought to do is we ought to give ourselves completely to Him. I I heard this week that lifeguards are taught that um, when they're going out to rescue someone, if someone's thrashing in the water, you know, and they're drowning, that the first thing the lifeguard is supposed to say to them is, calm down. Now, your natural reaction when you're drowning is not to calm down. But they say as a lifeguard, if you don't get them to calm down, then everything they're doing is fighting against the one who is trying to save them. Now, I thought about it because uh, when I read it, I, I, I can easily tell you the hardest baptism I've ever had. That's none of you, so don't worry, all right? And it's not even the guy that I baptized that was, was I'm not going to guess weight, but it was, he was about six Four and not thin. That wasn't even the hardest. The hardest one I ever had was a, a guy, it was one of my first baptisms. I was like 25 years old. Uh, they, they, I don't know if you all know this. They don't teach you how to baptize people in seminary. That kind of seems like something they ought to teach you. Right? And so I'm, there, I'm just, I don't know what I've, what I've seen everybody do. I take them and I, whoosh, let's go. They didn't tell me that people have a hard time getting their feet in water, all right? And so this guy comes up and he wants to be baptized. We've talked through it. And and I knew from the beginning, even from our conversation, that he was a mentally, he was a little mentally challenged. And and just, he had been all his life and and had grown up, but I felt confident that he had an understanding of what sin was and who God was and what Christ was doing in his life. And I was very glad to baptize him. And I went to baptize him. And as I started to go down, I I tell people that I baptized to, to, uh, to put their hand over their nose, and then I grab their hand and I kind of set them down. It's just a, it's a handle, all right? So as I'm going down, I feel his other hand grab my hand. I think, that's not good. I don't know what's going on. And as I get him under, he starts to yank. Now, he had grown up on a farm all his life and had been baling hay for as long as he had been alive. Now, I know some of you are city folk and don't understand He was strong, all right? And as I'm there, I am going with him. I finally took two hands and went underneath and grabbed him. I mean, it was obvious enough that people were laughing as he came out of the water. Not in celebration. That is so great. They were like, our pastor almost drowned. That's awesome. I will tell you that he called the office the next week and said that he needed to be baptized. He goes, no, we're not doing that. Because the pastor didn't go under with him. He thought that was what we were supposed to do. But I thought about it because what I tell people, especially now, is you just let me control everything, all right? You just relax. And it's so much easier. 
There are a lot of us in our lives. God is attempting to lead us somewhere to do something with us, to rescue us from a place. And we are thrashing around or trying to tell Him how it ought to be done. Instead of just saying, I surrender. Your will, not mine. Let me just ask you real quickly. In your life right now, what are you fighting against God on? Where are you thrashing around instead of surrendering to His will? Let's pray.